0: We're not going to waste any time this morning, we're going to be jumping back into the book of Romans. Are you guys excited to jump back into one of the greatest chapters, if not the greatest in the New Testament, Romans chapter 8 this morning? Man, you guys need help. You need, wow, Holy Spirit, help us this morning. All right, so, so we, we need to warm up this morning. So to get your mind and your heart warmed up, I want you to imagine for a moment, a little exercise here, that the Book of Romans was set to music and played by a symphony orchestra. That would either be really amazing or just incredibly strange. But I'll tell you this, if that was playing at the Schnitzer I would absolutely buy a ticket and go. So if Romans was set to music, scored and set to music, one thing's for sure. The music would most certainly start off in a minor key. For the music buffs here, think D flat minor, okay? Sad, tension. In the first three chapters, there's a lot of tension There's a lot of dissonance. As Paul reminds us that you and I, we live in a broken world that is under sin's curse. And we're separated from our right relationship with God. But then things would shift over to a major key as we soaked in these sweet melodies that began building on one another. And these are the verses in Romans that everybody loves, like Romans 5, verse 1, that we read months ago, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a major key verse right there. That makes you want to sing. Or how about this? Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? Boy, that's a great truth. That makes my heart sing. And all of these truths, they're all leading up to a crescendo at the end of Romans 8 that feels every bit as rapturous as Handel's Messiah chorus as we read that nothing Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So good. But before we can revel in what Paul has to say about God's love later on at the end of Romans 8, first, Paul needs us to sit in the dissonance and the tension and the minor chords one more time. In fact, it feels almost a bit disruptive as Paul changes keys once again and deals with the uncomfortable yet inevitable reality of suffering. Suffering. Suffering always feels like a disruption. This week, in our house, we had three, count them, three urgent care visits our youngest has a broken foot, and we have a dog that has had stomach issues, and you can kind of fill in the blanks with that. Wow, there, there's been a lot of disruptive things. It's preaching week in the Kaufman house this week, but it always feels like a disruption, and we've been calling this series The Beautiful disruption. And when does suffering ever feel like a beautiful disruption? It's certainly a disruption, but Paul's going to actually shift into a passage that deals with the reality of suffering and put it square in front of us. And here's why Paul's going to do this, and he needs to do this, is he knows that we'll never be able to rest secure in God's love when suffering comes, and it will come, unless our lives are rooted in an unshakable hope that suffering can't strip away. So while today's passage is not a light one by any stretch, get ready to think this morning, I also believe that these words are running over with the exact sort of hope that our hearts desperately need today. There's a lot of hope in this passage that uniquely our hearts are longing for. And so with that turn, if you will, to Romans chapter 8, we're going to dive back in our study this morning, starting in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. We wait for it with patience. This is God's word. If you're taking notes this morning, this passage is going to provide us with with three things. First, it's going to shed light on the reality of suffering. Then it's going to give us resources for suffering. And finally, it's going to give us a reassurance so that we can face suffering hopefully. So the reality of suffering resources for when we suffer and a reassurance that we can actually put these resources to work and have hope when suffering comes. Let's start by looking at how Paul sheds light on this reality of suffering in this passage. Now, did you notice, as we read the passage this morning, that there's a whole lot of groaning going on in this passage? Did you notice that word groaning? It shows up all over the place in this passage. Everyone's groaning. That word groaning is an incredibly strong word in Greek. It's a word that that means an expression of pain, but it goes beyond that. In many cases, this term was used to express the cry of somebody who is in anguish and facing death. For example, if you notice in verse 22, back in verse 22, it's associated with the groans or the screams and the cries that a woman would make as they're in labor. So in verse 22 we read for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. It's important to bear in mind that in ancient times many women actually died in childbirth. So this is not just an expression or a cry from somebody that's in pain, but somebody who is realistically in mortal danger. In fact, this word was also used in Greco-Roman literature to re- refer to the groanings of warriors who were wounded in battle. So while they'd be lying on the ground, they'd cry out, someone come help me tend to my wounds or I'm dead. I'm dying here. So the connotation of this word groaning carries this notion of a guttural cry from somebody who's anguishing and in mortal danger. And here's what's fascinating in this passage, and maybe you noticed it. Paul actually tells us that the whole creation is groaning. Every particle of our created world and every living thing, including you and I, we're all groaning. Human beings are groaning and crying out in this passage, but every living animate thing that God has created in the cosmos is groaning too. And in verses 20 and 21, Paul tells us why all creation is groaning, anguishing, crying out with this death cry. Look again at verses 20. And 21. Paul tells us the reason that we're all groaning, right here. For creation was subjected, Paul says, to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption. So two primary reasons, effects of the fall that actually describe why all creation, including you and I, were all groaning. Futility and corruption. So perhaps you notice that phrase in verse 20 that creation was subjected to futility. And if you're being observant, perhaps you're wondering what in the world does that mean? Do you know, I know this is gonna probably strike you as strange, this is actually my favorite verse in Romans. Right here. Creation was subjected to futility and hope. And some of you, you're looking at me like, you are a weirdo. (laughs) Why is this your favorite verse? I'll tell you why. Because this is a description of the world that we live in. Right here. Creation is subjected to futility. Very interesting word. It doesn't show up often, only twice in the New Testament. The Greek term that Paul uses for futility here, mateotes, mateotes, it can be translated emptiness or purposelessness or vanity in many translations. Vanity is actually the most helpful translation of this word because the Hebrew corollary to this Greek term shows up in the Old Testament and is translated vanity. The Hebrew cousin of this Greek term mateotis that can be translated vanity is this Hebrew word hevel. Stay with me, okay? This is gonna get connected. Hevel, say that with me so I know you're listening. Hevel, hevel. It means vanity, meaninglessness, or literally it can be translated vapor, mist, or smoke. Here's two verses from the Old Testament that use this Hebrew term, hevel. How about this one? Probably haven't read this one in a while. Job 7.16. This is a minor key verse right here. I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Leave me alone, for my days are a breath. That word breath is hevel. My days are a mist. My days are vanity. My days are meaninglessness. Or how about this one from Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 22 and 23? What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all of his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is hevel, vanity, a mist, a purposelessness, a vapor. What in the world is Paul doing saying all of creation is subjected to vanity? To vanity. What Paul is trying to show us is the reason that we groan is we live in a world that's still under sin's curse. And we suffer pain so often in life that on the surface does not have a clear, apparent meaning and purpose. Which I feel like we've all witnessed once again as Hurricane Ian tore through Florida. Now when natural disasters or other bad things happen, Christians, followers of Jesus, often with good intentions, will quote from Romans Eight. And you know the verse that people will pull out when really, really bad things happen in Romans 8. And guess what? It's not Romans 8.20 that creation is subjected to futility and hope. It's not. It's Romans 8.28. This is typically where people turn and, and they try to comfort people who are suffering. They'll say, we know that God causes all things to work together for good, to for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. But people never quote in times of suffering, for all creation is subjected to futility and hope. And by the way, I don't recommend quoting either of these verses to somebody that's groaning and in a world of suffering, or your words, words will likely feel empty, and you may unknowingly inflict more pain on somebody that is suffering like Job's friends did. And guess what? God told Job's friends that they spoke words of hevel, of emptiness. They didn't know what they were talking about. And trying to explain away the futility of suffering in Job's life, they ended up causing more pain to a man that had not sinned. Friends, you need to hear this this morning. The God of the Bible is good, and he's sovereign and gracious, and in the end, he will cause all things to work together for your ultimate good and for his ultimate glory. But it also says that we live in a world under sin's curse where so many people suffer brutally for reasons we won't understand until Christ returns and everything that's fractured and broken is finally redeemed. Amen? Amen? A little bit of an amen? Okay. I know, that's a tough, tough truth, but but it's one of the reasons that we groan. The second reason that all creation and we ourselves were groaning, we're all groaning, is because of what Paul calls bondage to corruption. Did you see that? It's in verse 21, let's read this again. He says that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. Some translations, instead of the word corruption, they substitute substitute that like the NIV does with the word decay, which is, I think, more helpful, because Paul is not talking about how creation is subjected to, like, a moral corruption. It's actually a material corruption, a material decay. Scientists refer to this as the second law of thermodynamics which basically states that the universe itself that we're living in is slowly deteriorating, where matter is moving from a state of order into decay. It means everything in our world is steadily wearing down and decaying. It means that no matter how many Orange Theory fitness classes (laughs) I take, or how closely I monitor my diet, I am wearing out, that I'm not like a digital clock or neither are you where you're plugged in, you're more like a wind-up clock. That you and I, we're, we're, we're wearing down. Some of you are nodding. If you're in your 20s, you don't like this and you don't believe it. It's true. Nobody gets a hall pass from the second law of thermodynamics. All creation is subjected to this corruption. And here's what happens, the older we get, you really start groaning more, <laughs> it, you do. I, I can tell you, young people, take note of this, you don't believe it right now. And I'm not just saying when you're going through hard times, no, like when you get up from the couch. <laughs> or you go to Orange Theory, you know, because you're, you're like, I wanna, I wanna definitely do this, and it's like leg day, and you're like, my wife just makes fun of me. She's like, you're groaning a lot. I'm groaning a lot. My old lab is groaning a lot. In my house, like, all creation is, like, groaning. I got, like, a kid with a broken foot and a boot crawling up our stairs. I got an old dog. My knee hurts. All creation is subjected to this bondage to corruption because it's absolutely true. It's materially true, and it's spiritually true. This is true of matter, but it's true, actually, of the immaterial and the spiritual part of us as image bearers of God. Look at what Paul says in verse 23. He says, we all groan inwardly, and this is why. We're eagerly awaiting our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We're looking forward to the day where there's no longer decay and corruption or futility. And one day, friends, we will have resurrected bodies that no longer get sick or sore or wear out. And isn't that good news? But in the meantime, we wait eagerly and we long for what's to come. But thankfully, this passage doesn't leave us wallowing and our suffering or just folding our hands and waiting, waiting for the redemption to come. It, instead, it actually equips us with practical resources to help when we're going through suffering. So after showing us the reality of suffering in this passage, Paul gives us resources. And if you're taking notes, these resources can be under three headings. Three headings, okay? Perspective, prayer, and community. Perspective, prayer, and community. According to Paul, when you put your faith in Jesus, you immediately get access to all three. But perspective is the most important. This first resource that Paul gives away in this passage, it's essentially connected. It's foundational to the other two. According to Paul, in order to endure, we need an internal hope that's actually heavier, that's weightier, than all of the hardships and sufferings that we're enduring in this life. That's what Paul is getting after in verse 18. Look at that verse again, first verse that we read, when Paul states, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Super fascinating imagery here that Paul uses. The word comparing that Paul uses, it's actually an accounting term in Greek. It literally means to count or to weigh something. You see, back in Paul's day, when you go to the marketplace and you wanted to purchase something, you would find that on all of the tables where the merchants were giving away their goods, they would have these scales. I think we have a picture here of one of the scales, actually, from a Greco-Roman marketplace. that would have been around in the days of Paul and Jesus. And, And you've probably seen scales like this. On one side of the scale, there'd be a standard weight, and then they would use the other side of the scale to weigh coins and evaluate actually the value of of something. That's how you would purchase items. And so Paul is actually giving us like a metaphor. It's a word picture here. And he's saying that our present sufferings in this life, if you put them on one side of the scale, they're not worth comparing, counting, weighing compared to the glory that awaits us. We have such a weighty hope on this side of the scale that no amount of suffering, the brutalities that we might endure in this life will tilt the scale. It will always be weightier. It will always be heavier. No matter what comes in your life, you have a heavier hope than all of the hardships you're going through. I believe this is why the word hope shows up five times in this passage. You need to know, it's like this, this bomb of hope. It just explodes with hope towards the end of the passage. And in the chapters to come, everything that Paul is saying, it's erupting out of this glorious hope that he's going to develop. Did you notice the word hope? It recurs, it's showing up all over in this passage. Because I believe That what suffering people, when you're in it, what you need more than pat answers or pity is hope. This is what our hearts desperately long for. But especially as we're going through suffering is a hope that's weighty and significant when we feel weighed down in life. And friends, nothing will change the way that you go through life more than hope. Nothing, nothing. Case in point. The worst job I ever had was copying medical records. I got paid to sit at a desk and copy medical records all day long. It was the worst job I I ever had. And just when I thought that the stack of paper and medical records was, was going down, People would bring more medical records. Turns out there's a lot of medical records out there and all I would do is sit by a copy machine all day with those medical records. And I hated it. It was the worst job I ever had. I lasted like three weeks and it was like, my soul can't endure this. I'm actually going crazy. <laughs> I'm losing, losing my mind. But if I went back, okay, let's just pretend. I go back to that, that terrible job. It turns out, Like my employer tells me that at the end of working a year, if I can, I can stick it out that I would get $150 million. Do you think that that would have changed my perspective? Would I have quit my job? No, I would have driven to that stupid desk and I would have seen that stack of medical records and my heart would have sang. I would have told you I had the best job in the world. I can't believe I get paid $150 million to to do this. This is really criminal. This is amazing. Now, silly illustration, same circumstances, same stupid copier, same work. What changed? Hope. Hope changes absolutely everything. This is what you need to know. Biblical hope is not merely an optimistic outlook or wishful thinking. It's a confident expectation of a paycheck to come. It's coming. A future reward in heaven that's infinitely greater and more glorious than any amount of suffering that we endure in this life. Or, as Teresa of Avila put it so eloquently, listen to these words, in light of heaven, the worst suffering on earth will be seen no more serious than one night." In an inconvenient hotel. I've stayed in some bad hotels. Some of you that may be in it right now and, and you're suffering, don't mistake what Paul is saying here about our hope in Jesus as minimizing your pain, what you're going through. Biblical hope doesn't silence our groanings, it actually awakens and intensifies them and gives them direction. Few Christians knew this better than the brilliant thinker and author C.S. Lewis. The great tragedy for those familiar with C.S. Lewis's life came when his wife, Joy, died to bone cancer in 1960. She was actually miraculously healed Um, in ways the doctors didn't understand, but the cancer came back, and in 1960, she passed away. Although C.S. Lewis had written extensively on many topics, including the topic of suffering, he had published a book 20 years before Joy died, called The Problem of Pain, her passing forced Lewis to wrestle and re-examine what he believed as evidence in a collection of his journal entries that was called A Grief Observed. But instead of abandoning the hope he had in Jesus, even though he reexamined his faith and said in A Grief Observed, I feel like so many things I believe were like a house of cards, and the house of cards has come down, and suffering did that to me. He didn't deconstruct his faith or abandon his hope in Jesus. Instead, he became a man that was obsessed with hope. He was possessed with a vision of biblical hope to the point that it spills out of every sentence and paragraph that Lewis wrote towards the end of his life. Here's one It comes out, it actually comes out of Romans 8 that was entitled The Weight of Glory. It was an address he gave. And listen to these words that Lewis wrote towards the end of his life, after Joy died. Apparently then our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from now which we feel cut off to be on the inside of some door which we've always seen from the outside is no mere neurotic fancy, but the truest index of our real situation. And to be at last summoned inside would be both glory and honor beyond all our merits and also the healing of that old ache. If Lewis is right, and I'm more convinced than ever that he is, then all of our aches and groanings are an echo of what you and I are all eagerly awaiting and longing for. One day when all things are redeemed, and we stand before God in heaven. Our suffering will be forgotten the same way that a mother forgets the groans and cries of childbirth the moment that she holds her child for the first time. And everything sad will become untrue. And there will be no groaning left. Only glory. Amen. Amen. But what do we do with that? How do we grow into people that can tap into this perspective? Well, there's no way to do that without prayer. We have to do something with this perspective. It's not enough to believe this. You need to work it out in your heart. And that's where prayer comes in. When you suffer, friends, you do not have to stuff your pain down or pretend that you are fine. This passage frees us, liberates us to cry out to God with guttural honesty. And that's what prayer is. Prayer, although we overcomplicate prayer so often, it is a cry. To God. That's why we see in Romans 8.15, if you were here last week, we read verse 15 where it says, you and I have received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And the groaning later on in this passage, it's all an outcry from our hearts, crying out to God. That's what prayer is. You know, when I became a parent, one of the very first things that I marveled at was my wife's ability to decipher the different kinds of cries that our boys would make. Did you know there's different kinds of cries? Even I got to know these cries after a while, but my wife knew them all the moment that our children were born. It was amazing. There's the I'm hungry cry. There's the full diaper cry. There's the, I'm tired or annoyed cry. There's the, he hit me cry. And then there's the, I'm in trouble cry. There's the, oh, 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 I'm in trouble. And when you hear this cry, it's really a groan. It makes every hair stand on end and you drop everything and you run. You make a beeline to your child. Friends, hear this. Just make eye contact for a minute. If you are an adopted child of God, when you cry out and when you pray and you're suffering, do you know what the God of the universe does? He runs to you. He comes to you. And in a supernatural miracle of grace, the Holy Spirit comes and is present immediately with you. Whenever you cry out with the I'm in trouble cry, look at how God responds. Look at verse 26. I don't think I've really appreciated this until in post-pandemic world that you and I are living in. Look at what Paul says about how the God of the universe responds when we cry out. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes, that is, prays for us, with groanings too deep for words. So as we groan, the Spirit groans with us and intercedes with perfect perspective, with perfect wisdom, and perfect grace. Friends, what a comfort to know that there is not a moment when you wake up or go to sleep where the Spirit of God, God himself, is interceding for you. And not just with nice prayers, but groaning and crying out when you're in it. What a grace. What a comfort. You're never praying alone. Lastly, when we're suffering, we not only need a perspective, We're given access to God in prayer, but we're given a community. When you're going through hardships, it's so easy to feel like you're the only one who is suffering. But I want you to notice something in this passage. As we groan, we cry out, we go through trials in this life, we're never suffering alone. All creation is groaning. The Holy Spirit of God is groaning and other believers, both here and all around the world are groaning as well. Contrary to what our Instagram reels or Sunday morning greetings often portray. So many of us I know in truth are still reeling from the pain of the pandemic. It's right below the surface in most of us for being honest. All of us have lost relationships. Some of us have lost loved ones, and many have sat with many folks that have lost hopes, aspirations, dreams, businesses. Brothers and sisters in Jesus, if you're suffering today, please don't buy into the lie that you're the only one who is suffering. You're not alone. I'm so grateful that we have a class in our church called Grief Share. It's this 13-week course that fosters a safe community where you can groan together alongside others. There'll be opportunities to do that, or just getting in, in a community group where you can, you can actually share your true heart and say, I'm actually really groaning right now. I'm not okay. You're not alone. God has not abandoned you. He will bring you through whatever you are walking through right now. And I know some of you may be struggling and saying, how can I be sure of this? And this is where I'm so grateful that Romans 8, it gives us this incredible reassurance that our hope is not in vain. Look again at what Paul says as he reassures us of our hope in verse 24. He says, For in this hope we are saved. What hope is he talking about here? Is this the hope of heaven? No. In fact, there's many people who are hoping they're good and decent and moral enough to go to heaven, both believers and unbelievers in our world. And there's places in this passage where we're actually hoping for the life to come. The new heaven and the new earth where there will not be any bondage to corruption. There'll be no decay. We get resurrected bodies. But this hope that saves is not heaven. You don't get saved by hoping to go to heaven when you die. And it's not a future hope. It's actually present tense. Look again. It says, in this hope, we're saved. Sozo, the word saved, rescued from mortal danger. We're saved here, right now. So what is he talking about? Remember when Paul cried out to God, much like a a warrior wounded in battle, seeing a wound and going, oh my goodness, if somebody doesn't come, help save me, I'm dead. Back in chapter seven, Paul cries out and groans to God, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. There's the answer. Folks, there is only one hope that saves, and hope has a name, and his name is Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. The gospel tells us Jesus came into our groaning world. He came in, he was subjected to the worst kinds of suffering our world can throw at someone. He was rejected experienced poverty, abuse, injustice, betrayal, torture, and death. And on the cross, as Jesus' life was ebbing away, he cried out to God, and he quoted these words from Psalm 22. With his final breath, this is what Jesus cried out and groaned to God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Friends, Jesus groaned and cried out, and on that day on Golgotha, when Christ was hanging on the cross, no one came to his rescue. Why? It's so that when we groan and cry out to God, you'll never be abandoned in your pain he was forsaken, and the words of his groaning were far from the ears of God on that day so that you and I could be accepted, adopted into God's family, safe and secure in his love forever, amen? That's what we call the gospel, the good news of Christianity, that Jesus Christ became our sin so that we could be reconciled in right relationship with God. We're going to celebrate that today. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up here. And, and during this next song, I would encourage you, if, if you have, have made that your hope, then come to the table, receive the bread and the cup, and we'll celebrate that. But if this is a day where you are realizing that there's a groaning in your life, that nothing has been able to ease. Today, don't walk away from this moment without having a hope that will never disappoint you. I'm gonna pray, and maybe your heart is in a place where you need to make this your prayer and invite you to do that. Would you bow your head and let's pray. Let's turn our hearts to the Lord this morning. Father, I thank you, Lord, for this incredible hope, Lord, that saves. How our world right now, Lord, is in so much heartache, there's so many, Lord, I know, that are groaning right now, and I know, Lord, that there's hearts here that are groaning. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that is groaning with every groaning heart. Pray you administer comfort and truth. Father, that that you would ease our comforts with a sure hope of our Savior who was forsaken so that we could be accepted. Teach us to live by this hope. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.